0: Last week, we talked about this lie that everything is perfect. And this week, we're going to tackle the lie, it's all about you. It's all about you is similar to this everything should be perfect because it's one of those lies that if I were to ask you straight away, do you think that every church should be perfect? You would say, absolutely not. Except once, once your needs are not met, you'll probably all of a sudden think that the church should be perfect because your needs aren't met. And likewise, I may say, hey, do you think church is all about you? You'd be like, no, no, church is not all about me. But then if something doesn't go the way you would want it to go, you would maybe complain or maybe say something, right? That's how sneaky these lies are, is that at the forefront, we would dismiss them. At the forefront, we would say, no, they're not true. But really, in our hearts and in our actions, they tend to be so true. And that's because we buy these lies, we adopt these lies, because we swim in a culture that teaches us to. Human beings, and Americans in particular, are infatuated with perfection. We talked about that last week. But we're also infatuated with the individual experience of somebody having a personal experience and that mattering more than anything. The writer Bill McKibben says that we are not a culture of individualists, but rather we are a culture of hyper-individualists. That actually, to the next level, we, we so prize the individual person that it's almost like we can't see it anymore because we all agree on it. Yuval Harari, in his new book, Homo Deus, he wrote the book Sapiens, the international bestseller, and he wrote a follow-up to it on the future of humanity. And in the book, he says, in every area of culture, we have become so individualistic and humanistic in every area of culture. And he gives these different areas and gives taglines for the different areas and how we've become so focused on the individual. The first is in politics. In politics, we have become kinds of societies, especially in the Western modern world, that says this, the voter knows what's best. The voter knows. And if we collect all of the individual votes, we will get the best result. You can argue if that's true or not. But at the end of the day, we prize the individual voter. In economics, what do we say? The customer is always right. Right? That the individual customer and their experience in a store or in retail, if you're in real retail, you totally know what this is like, that the customer is always right. How about in art? In art, we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So you may not think that's art, but that person thinks it's art, so it's art. Because this person finds it beautiful. Or this music, one person finds it beautiful, and therefore it is music, right? How about ethics? In our ethics and our morals, we say, if it feels good to you, do it, right? Okay, so if, if, if you feel good and that makes you feel good, then it's right. It's changed how we think about ethics and morals. How about education? The prize of American education and Western education in particular is this, to think for yourself. To think for yourself. Do you notice how, in all of these areas of society, Harari says th- th- this is the prize, this is the ultimate prize that all of us would end up thinking in such an individualistic way? And this is a problem because we end up bringing this attitude into churches. When we walk into a church, we ask the question what will this community do for my personal relationship with Jesus Christ? How will me as an individual be affected by this community I'm about to join? In other words, we say, how will the community affect the individual instead of how will the individual affect the community? And the difference is actually massive. The difference is is super important to all of a sudden flip the script for a second and turn this conversation on itself. Is the church, the body of Christ, the church on earth, is it worth it? Is it really, is it, is it's total mission to satisfy every individual or does every individual work to satisfy the community? that difference in how we walk into churches is changing because we think about faith this way. We talk about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He is my personal savior, my faith, my walk, my journey. These are all individualistic uh, lang- languages. These are all kind of phrases and, and claims that are centered on the individual. And can I just bring this to your attention? Your attention. All of those phrases I just said appear nowhere in scripture, Personal Savior is not something you'll find in your Bible. But you know what you'll see over and over and over again is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that actually the body of the church experiences Jesus as a community and that there's no such thing as, a, as someone who is all alone in their faith, except that's how we view it. We walk into awakening and we go, how will awakening help me with my walk with Jesus? Instead of, how can my walk with Jesus help awakening? How can my walk with Jesus help this church? And the difference is enormous. So then we look at passages of Scripture, and we view them through the lens of Western individualism. We view uh, something like Romans 12, which is a very popular passage, and the passage we're in today. If you look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have often interpreted this as highly highly individualistic. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's a pretty common verse. Maybe some of you have heard it. Maybe some of you have studied it. And we often just Sit with Romans 12, 1 and 2. And we just go, okay, this, um, all right, don't be conformed, but be transformed. So how am I going to change? How am I going to be transformed? How will I offer my body as a living sacrifice and worship God? Just me. Got to worry about me. We view it through Western individualism. But let me give you the Bible-like reading hack I gave you last week, which is keep reading. Keep reading. It's very important for us to Keep reading. And it's very strange. I planned these sermon texts months ago to preach on Romans 14 last week and Romans 12 this week, and Romans 13 is in the news. And what I would say to our culture at large is to keep reading your Bible. Because to cherry pick and pronounce one piece of scripture as the be all end all is something called proof texting. And it's very dangerous, and in fact, some of the worst atrocities in Christianity have come through just cherry-picking verses instead of doing what we try to do at Awakening, which is biblical theology. Let's take the whole Bible and the whole counsel of God to teach us how to live. And to use God's word for the oppression of people and especially young children is against God's will and not, for, not in God's word. To cherry pick Romans 13 and all of a sudden exclude it from this passage we're about to look at, Romans 12, and the passage we looked at last week, Romans 14, which talks about welcoming outsiders and welcoming neighbors and treating those who are weak with great gentleness and compassion. To exclude those passages from the Romans 13 passage is to do a disservice to God's word. And there's something that needs to happen in America for us to keep reading. In America, we have to keep reading our Bibles and to go deeper into our Bibles, not shy away from them when people misuse it. Man, the church has never done that. Instead, we've done better theology and pushed forward. And so let's do better theology this morning and look at Romans 12. Look at verse 3. Let's just keep reading. So that's God's will for us is to be transformed. But in verse 3, Paul says, For by by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, now look at this, and I would underline this if you've got a Bible. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. See, this is just sentences before Romans 13. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If we are going to be a church that is not just a bunch of individuals, but truly a community, we have to make the move, the transformation that Romans is talking about from me faith to a we kind of faith. That's the transition that Paul is trying to take us on, is that Christianity is not about you. That Christianity is not about your individual personal relationship with Jesus, but your cooperation of the collective body of Christ, of joining in with his body. And so how do we move from me to we? Paul says in verses 1 and 2 that actually worship is the path to transformation. Worship is the path to transformation. You'll notice in that passage, he says to offer your bodies as living sacrifices and not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed. But that worship and transformation interplay, the antidote to a culture obsessed with self, is worship. Worship beyond singing, even though it includes singing, we talked about that last week, it's actually a living sacrifice, Paul says. He says it is to offer your entire body, all of who you are, everything to Jesus, all of your finances, all of your decision-making, all of your opinions, all of who you think you are as an individual and asking God to redefine them. And Paul says that's going to be your liturgy. He uses this word in Greek that's really religious practice. It's translated as worship here. But he's saying your religious practice is not going to be with incense, although I'm all for incense, or you know, can, uh, incantations, or any type of religious strange practice, any strange liturgy. Your liturgy is waking up every morning and saying, "God, my body is yours. Everything, my physical body, my emotional state, everything is yours. S- speak to me so that I might do Your will." That's what we wake up and do every morning. That's how we worship. And Paul is telling you, that is what will change your life. Transformation happens because of worship. The invitation of Christianity to a world obsessed with the individual is to say, lose yourself in worship. Lose yourself. You see, we want to hold on to ourselves and we forget Jesus' great words in Matthew 16, 25. Probably the most profound words I would argue ever spoken by anyone. He says, for whoever would lose his life, or whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, transformation comes through self-forgetfulness. Not through self-knowledge. Not through self-help. Not through self-actualization. Do you notice all these self-words we love? Americans love self fill in the blank. There's one self word with Christianity, self-forgetfulness. To completely lose track of yourself. And here's the thing, God placed hints of this in our our nature and in our world all over. Because all of you know this. You dads know this. When you lose track of yourself in love for your kid, you're happier than you've ever been. You mothers know this, right? You know this, you don't have to be a Christian to know this. Self-forgetfulness is the pathway to becoming a different kind of human being, to becoming a new kind of human being. It's when we say, I am giving up my body for the sake of service to God and service to others. I will do anything for service to God and service to others. That is what will actually transform you. And so, where are you holding back? What is not on the table for Jesus? What, what have you said, God, I'll give you this, 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 and this, but I'm going to hold this back. God, I'll give you everything, I just, I got my investments, my money, I got to figure out my money. God, I'll give you everything, but I want to have my own sexual ethic. God, I'll put everything on the table, but just, I got to keep my schedule and my time, I got to work really hard, because I'm, I'm, I'm all about my career, and so I got to just give all my time to my work, and I'm going to give you everything else, though, except for my weekly schedule, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely make sure I'm just more on the clock than off, or whatever, right? Whatever we want to do however we want to paint this, where are we holding back? Because we are actually not holding back from anything except for transformation. We're holding back from becoming a different kind of person. And one of the most frustrating things about being a human being is being the same kind of person. Literally, I wake up every day, I'm like, this again? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you long to become different, more humble, and helpful of a person? I, I was, before I worked at Awakening, I was leading a internship in the inner city and, uh, in, in San Francisco, and uh, I, it was this nine-month uh, ordeal where kids would come in from all over the world, and they would work with our ministry in the Tenderloin, and they would serve uh, for nine months. I'd teach them theology in the morning, and then me and my staff would run the program to make sure they're plugging into all these different ministries in the inner city to serve the poor and the mar- marginalized in San Francisco, and I watched kids change through self-forgetfulness. Like, I, I remember this one kid showing up, and we would tell our stories in the first, like, couple days. And we were going around telling our stories, and this kid was from Texas. And I just remember, he, he goes, he's like, y'all, like a good Texan, he's like, y'all, I don't know why I'm here, but I got to give it all away. I, I watched this kid physically, emotionally, and spiritually transform. He actually even looked like a different person when he graduated. I mean, he lost like 25 pounds or something. I mean, he came from a difficult background, and he was like, you know, he's drinking, and he was uh, using pills and stuff, and man, he was just in this, this selfish zone. He couldn't get out of it. And then he came and interacted with the poor. And then he came, and he just lost his rights for a little while. He lost his licenses to do whatever it is he wanted to do. He was in our program and he had to be in bed at a certain time and wake up at a certain time and show up on a certain time. He had to do his homework. And he lost himself for nine months. And it changed his life. He's literally a different man today than he was when he entered into the program. All because he worshipped. He was offering his body as a living sacrifice and it changed him. Maybe that's why some of you need to do protege. This is a change. All right, shameless plug. But we're not changed for the sake of changing. Paul says in verses three through eight that transformation is the path to service. You see, when we worship and when we're changed, we're not just changed to be great people and look at us how great we are. We're not changed to be humble so that other people would be like, look at how humble he is. Look at what Paul says. He says, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is in verses 1 and 2, right? That you may discern what is the will of God. And then the very next statement in verse 3, again, just keep reading. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he or she ought to. Do you notice the change here? You are transformed Not for the sake of transformation, but rather the, quote, transformation of your mind is not for you individually, but for us collectively. You are changed so that you could help me. And I am changed so that I might help you. You and I are not changed so that we might be changed people and everybody think we're great. You're not changed to be a better dad and then you're just like, so we can all tell you that you're a great dad. No, you're changed so that you might be in service, more, more better service to your children. You are transformed to serve. Last week, I said, this is kind of the analogy of the church. It's not a restaurant, right? It's not a restaurant where you come and uh, you receive and we provide this amazing experience and you tip us on the way out. The, the better analogy for a church is a family meal, Right? that it's messy at the beginning, you gotta like chop the vegetables and everything, and it's messy at the end, you gotta do the dishes, but right in the middle, there's something precious. But all of us contribute to that meal. All of us show up, all of us are ready to go. All of us sing, all of us contribute, all of us encourage. We are transformed so that we might be able to contribute. We all have a way to contribute. That's why Paul says in verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, but he says this, let us use them. Let's use them. You see, we are transformed into members of a body, into members of a body. That's why Paul says earlier in verse five, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Individually, yes, we are all individuals, I get that. However, you're not an individual on your own. You're an individual as a member of the body. And what has God gifted you with and are you using it? What has God given you that you're holding back? Let me be clear. It doesn't require awakening to have a program for it. It's just about how do you walk into awakening? And what are the questions on your mind? Most of us as Americans and individualists walk into church and we say, I wonder what the sermon will be about. I hope they do the songs I like. What if we changed, allowed God to change us and walked in saying, who can I encourage this morning? Who could I pray for? Who's somebody that's hurting, that's in need? Where's somebody that looks lonely that I could welcome? Those questions are very different and highly anti-American and beautifully biblical. (laughs) Two great questions to think about in addition to what I just gave you. Great question number one. Where do my gifts and the need of this church line up? Where do my gifts and the needs of this church line up? Right? Some of you have skills and talents and abilities that we need your help with. And there's certain times where we need to kind of ask that question and say, hey, I'm kind of good at some things and the church has these needs. And we need to have eyes to see those. And it's not always going to look like a pastor asking you to do it. And we don't need a program for you to exercise every single one of these gifts. It's just that sometimes you need to be like, hey, I've noticed people at awakening, you know, maybe maybe you're noticing something about us we don't see. And you're like, you know, some people, they hang out with the people they normally hang out with. Well, that's a beautiful invitation for you to be open and welcoming, right? For you to be outwardly focused, turned towards others. Great question number two, am I doing for this church what God has asked all people to do for their own local church? Am I doing for this church what God has asked all believers everywhere to do for their church? Here's my point. A lot of the things Paul have talked about, I would, I would argue most of what he talked about in our passage, does not require a weird type of supernatural gift. Here's what I mean. We have overly individualized spiritual gifts to where we are not even thinking about them biblically where we're like, oh, this is my gift and this is what I do, so I'm going to just do that. As opposed to just contributing in all the ways God has asked us to do that everyone in the power of the Holy Spirit can do. He even mentions prophecy, which you may think is like, oh, that's scary. Prophecy, what is that, right? Is that predicting the future? No, no. Prophecy is simply speaking God's word to man. That's what our prayer team does over here every week. Our prayer team speaks God's word to you. When you're saying, I need this and I need this, they're speaking God's word and praying for you. It's prayerfully what I'm trying to do up here preaching. It's what our worship music is doing too. It's trying to communicate God's word to you and to me. That's simple, right? Paul mentions serving. Paul mentions giving. Paul mentions all these things that all Christians could basically do. I remember we were unloading a a truck one time uh, in the inner city. And uh, we were getting donations all the time, and we got this big donation, I think, from Trader Joe's or something like that. And a couple of guys were unloading the truck, and this guy walks by, and he's like, hey, man, can you help us unload this truck? And he said, sorry, bro, my spiritual gift is not service. And it was like, well, it is today. <laughs> and you, we, we, we can laugh at that easily, but how many of us say, oh, I'm not good at praying? Oh, I'm a weird, I'm not good at evangelism oh yeah, I'm not a very hospitable person, right? We say that all the time, but these are things God has asked all believers to do everywhere. And so it's time to jump in. It's time to participate. Albeit difficult or awkward or uncomfortable, it's time to jump into the things that God has asked all of us to do. That's why Paul says in verse three, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You You don't need an extra measure of faith to pray with someone. Praying is like breathing, like, like it's just, uh, it, it's, it's this natural thing that all Christians do. Four, four simple ways all Christians can contribute, so I can organize it for you a little bit. Number one is serving. And what serving is, is allowing someone else to articulate a need they have and you filling it. That's as easy as it is. And service is all over. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, James 1 and 2, Acts 6. It's, it's Jesus' entire vision of leadership and Mark 10, 35 through 45. His entire vision of leadership is through service, is is through lowering yourself and and saying, I will do whatever you need me to do. And at Awakening, we have tons of that need, right? Your your chair that you're sitting in needs to be torn down after the service, right? Like this doesn't just happen magically, right? Service is something that we need at Awakening to constantly survive, and we need all Christians to participate in that way, in some way, very simple. Family love, number two. Family love, did you know that the dominant metaphor, the dominant metaphor for the Christian church in the scriptures is brother and sister? And what I I mean by this is is you don't need a special gift to learn to love everybody here. You just got to love everybody here. You got to find God's heart for everybody here. You don't pick and choose who you love. We've got to love all people. we got to dive into that metaphor because as you know, whether this is good news or bad news, you don't choose family, right? Yeah, you don't. And likewise, that's the way with Christians, you know? Sometimes somebody's driving you crazy at work and then you find out they go to church and you're like, shoot. <laughs> I mean, like, I know I'm supposed to love everybody, but I definitely got to love Christians. <laughs> you see something on the news of people that are acting in a way that is ungodly and unbiblical and you think... Gosh, if there's a shred of faith in there that loves Jesus, that's my brother right there. Oh, can't ignore family love. Prayer, I mentioned this earlier, is the third way all Christians can contribute. Like I said, a lot of people put too much pressure on prayer, and I, I get it. I know you hear people pray, you hear worship leaders or pastors pray, and you just go, I'm not good at it. But like I said, prayer is like breathing, it's, it's, it's essential for all Christians to do. In fact, I'll just put it more strongly. Christians pray. Christians just pray. And it's like humans breathe. And nobody's like, ooh, he's a really good breather. <laughs> like, like, that's just not a thing. And I know we have that in Christian culture, but let's just get rid of that. It's dumb. Like, we're, we're just all people who rely on God through prayer. And so all of us have that to participate in. I mean, I think some of you come to Awakening and you, like, sing the songs and you listen to the sermon. You never pray when you're even here. Like, to just expose your heart to God and go, God, what do you need of me? God, I'm asking you, what do you want from me? Man, this is the time in the week to just pause and, and reorient your mind around God's heart. And, and finally, the way that all Christians contribute is, is really through financial giving. It, biblically. I mean, Paul puts it in here alongside of um, service and prophecy. He says, the one who contributes, contribute in great generosity, I mean, th- this is all throughout your, your scriptures. 2 Corinthians 7 and 8, Acts 2, 42 through 47, Acts 4, 32 through 35. Jesus' own words. Do you know his teaching on giving in the Sermon on the Mount? He starts it this way, very beautiful, very subtle. He says, when you give. Do you understand that he already is assuming you're giving? Have You ever thought about that? He's like already assuming that you're contributing to the needs of the church. And it, might I just remind you, Awakening's not free. And we have vision to reach this next generation, to awaken them to new life in Christ. And it's gonna cost all of us some sacrifice. And I think there's some of us that we're like, well, I, get, I was at of church and I get it. Man, when a pastor starts talking about money, it's terrible. It's just like, what is happening here? But here's what I've, here's what I've recognized. I just wanna submit this to you. The the more I've grown in generosity and not just giving to my church, but just giving to others who have needs, to give to, you know, my wife and I have adopted um, children that are in foreign countries that we pay for education for, like just just extending my generosity that I'm not perfect at, but as I've grown in that, here's what I've noticed. When my pastors start to talk about money, I'm like, yeah, baby. (laughs) I'm like, let's do this. (laughs) Because people think generosity is this like, massive rock, and you're like, yeah, you gotta do it, you gotta push it, and it's hard, and you just, it's what you gotta do as a Christian. Here's what I've noticed. It's like taking off in a plane. It's thrilling. You're like, what's happening here? I'm letting go of my money, <laughs> and God carries you through and takes you to places you could never possibly imagine you, you go. I mean, I mean, seriously, Like the more money I give, the more addicted to giving I get. I'll put it this way. I've never met an ex-giver I've met, uh, you know, hard-hearted pre-givers. <laughs> that might be you, God bless you, God, let's, let's have God work in our hearts today. But I've never met somebody who goes, you know, Chris, I tried being generous back in the 80s and, uh, you know, it was just bad. <laughs> the Christians I meet who are generous have a lifelong continued extension of their finances to others. It's beautiful. And awakening, we, we've got to grow in this. Like we're a young church and a lot of us don't make a lot of money, but we've got to contribute what we can and how we can, when we can. Because God cares about the heart of the giver. He doesn't care about how much you give. He's really caring about your heart. Do you understand that? He, he's actually, he really loves you so much that he doesn't want you to be held back by finances and held back by material items. He wants you to feel what it's like to be disassociated with your possessions. That's how he's trying to make this life for you. And that's what ends up happening is when we're transformed, we serve. And finally, service ends up becoming the path to love because the strange thing is much like generosity and with generosity, you just can't become an ex-generous person. With service, it's hard to become an ex-serving person because you continually find yourself loving people with a bigger heart than you could imagine. All of you with kids, again, you know this. You had one kid, and you were like, I love this thing more than the world. And then the other one's coming, and you're like, how am I going to love both? What happens? Every parent I've ever talked to, your heart multiplies. It doesn't add. It's not addition. It's multiplication because you're able to actually serve another human being, and you find out my heart is way larger than I thought it was. And that's what happens to the Christian is the more you serve, the more you give, the more you consider others better than yourself, the more you love people. Service is what connects us to others. It's why, you know, some of you, I met you three months ago at our newcomers thing. We call them happy hours. And I met you there. You were brand new to the church. And in like two weeks, you started serving. And now we know each other. Or I see you with a kid's shirt. I'm like, hey, kids, thanks for, thanks for serving kids. That's awesome. And we're more connected now. And I'm like, that person's legit. You know what I mean? I'm like, this person gets it. This person's awesome, right? It's because we have a greater love for each other because we are serving each other in the church And when we serve each other, we expand our ability to love. That's what Jesus, that was built into the entire fabric of this world. That's what Jesus came here to do, was actually offer his life instead of take the lives of all people, which he would have been justified in doing. He could have been justified in taking all life, but instead he chose his life to lay it down on our behalf. That's how our love becomes genuine, because you cannot hate somebody you serve. When you actually serve someone and you consider them higher than yourself and you contribute to the need that they have, you can't hate them. That's why Paul says in verse nine, he says, let your love be genuine. The, the Greek word is anahypokritos which literally is translated without hypocrisy. Let your love be without any hypocrisy. Well, how can that happen? How can you live without hypocrisy? You just serve people. You start to view people as higher than yourself, as better than you. And all of a sudden your love becomes genuine, just like what happens between a father and a son in the best world. You make yourself more like Jesus when you become a servant of the world. Here's how I can put it a little bit more plainly. The people you and I don't like are simply people you and I have failed to serve. It's just people we've failed to serve. We haven't actually engaged with them in the posture Jesus would like to engage with the world. We, we've ignored that and that's why they drive us crazy. Now what's really great about this passage is I know there's some people that are almost impossible to love because of the evil they've done to us in our life. Because of the wickedness that has happened in our own world. And that's why Paul says, very next phrase, he says, let love be genuine. And then in Romans 12 verse nine, he says, abhor what is evil. So your love is genuine, but you still, you disassociate and disavow All evil. And God does not have to have you and you don't have to interact with pure evil. You don't gotta interact with evil. You can distance yourself from the wickedness of this world and remain in God's will. And so the hope for the Christian is to actually just expand our imagination a little bit. It's what Graham Greene says. He says, hate is just a failure of the imagination. Is that actually if we expand our imagination just a little bit to view people differently in the way that Jesus views people, we might actually find true love with each other. Love requires a kind of holy imagination, kind of holy imagination. It just expands what we believe about people. Ultimately, the beauty of this, when we start viewing the church not as a community for the individual, but we start being individuals who commit ourselves to the community, when that change happens, when we move from me to we as a Christian, we actually become a part of Christ. It's strange. This is how deep the theology goes. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22. It says this, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. That's why Jesus is ahead head of all things. It's actually for the benefit of all of us, 23. And the church is is his body. It's not like his body. It's not going to be his body. The church is his body. It is made full and complete, not by you or me, but by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. You see, Jesus died on the cross for people to know him, but to also participate with him. And the way he has designed this to work is for you to not do a Christianity on your own, for you to not have a personal relationship with Jesus, but a corporate relationship with Jesus, for you not to have an individualistic faith, but to have a cooperative faith with people very different from you, and to not view the church as some type of community that's going to commit to you individually, but for you to take your individuality and commit to us collectively. That is what God is inviting us into, nothing less. God's vision for the church is that big. And I believe that there's some people here that have taken the step of just the me faith with Jesus. And because you haven't committed to his church, you just haven't gone to the place God wants you to go. And you don't know him as well. I have seen my own life in my own pastoral ministry and my own faith. I've seen as I commit more to the church, I get to know God way more. I get to know God's heart way more when I sit with people who are not like me, when I pray for those who are persecuted, when I'm helping those who are hurting, when I'm contributing to those who have serious needs. I get to know God's heart a little bit more. Why? Because I've actually become a little bit a part of him. And God's inviting you to be a part of him in his body. You see, I can't fully renew my mind without your help. And you can't fully renew your mind without All of our help. And the truth is, I am not fully, quote, in Christ if I'm out of his body. You see, a lot of us want a decapitated Jesus, a lot of us just want him alone, but he's not offering that package to the world. He's offering the package to the world that includes him, permeates himself through all things, but involves his body, his hands and his feet. And so friends, will you step in to God's community? Will you step into his church? It is not perfect. It is not all about you. But could there be, in spite of all those lies, something God's inviting into you that will transform your life forever? At the end of the day, awakening is not fully operative without you and I contributing to it. Awakening is not fully awakening unless all of us involve. And some of us are in various places of faith. And I'm just asking you, what is your next step? Where do you need to step in more to awakening? Where do you need to step more into your church? Where do you need to step more into God's body so that you might be more connected to him? My prayer for us is that this text in Romans 12 would deeply, deeply shape who we are as a church to help us understand it is not about me. It's about we. Let me pray. Father, we need you. And I confess that. I confess, God, that we believe we just need part of you. We don't need your body. We don't need your church. And I know that the church is responsible for evil all across the world. But I also know the church is responsible for immense good across the earth. And I know, God, if we were to live in the biblical vision of not a perfect church, but a faithful one, that you would transform us here in the Silicon Valley. That Actually, you would use awakening in, in a particular way to change us and therefore change the valley, therefore change what the ecosystem of spirituality in this, in this world. And God, I know that's the big vision because that's the biblical vision. And so, Holy Spirit, help us, lead us, guide us. Holy Spirit, protect us but I pray that you would encourage each believer here today to contribute to your body in whatever way they can. In Jesus' name, amen.